this is ClearStats Investment Forum, where we hold discussions with allocators, managers, and other industry leaders on current investment trends and topics. These conversations are led by members of our investment office who conduct research on investment strategies. Thank you in advance for listening, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi, I'm Joe Bouchel. In today's episode, we are fortunate to have Gena Lazowski. Gena Lazowski is co-founder and managing partner of Sandglass Capital Management. Mr. Lazowski has 31 years of investment management experience in special situations in private equity investing. Mr. Lazowski was co-founder of Salute Capital Management, where he would focus on distressed credit, stress credit, and equity investing in the former Soviet Union, Western Europe, the Middle East, and Japan. Prior to Salute, Mr. Lazowski was co-founder and managing director of Sputnik Funds and Delta Private Equity Partners, two private equity investment funds targeting companies in the former Soviet Union, and with combined assets under management of approximately $1.5 billion. Over the course of his investment career, Mr. Lazowski has served on the board of directors of over a dozen emerging market companies. Mr. Lazowski began his career in the Mergers and Acquisitions Department of Credit Suisse in New York. Mr. Lazowski graduated cum laude from the University of Chicago, where he studied economics and statistics. Mr. Lazowski is an American citizen and is fluent in Russian and conversant in French. Uh, welcome, Gana. How are you doing today? Uh, very well. Thank you, Joe. How are you? Great. Gana, you have a really interesting background, and you, and you definitely invest in some interesting markets. So we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and, and, and how you came to um, be interested in emerging markets. Sure. Thank you. Well, I... I I guess the interest in emerging markets comes from um, probably having been born in one or um, or being born in one that wasn't quite even a market yet. It was just emerging. So I was born in uh, in, in the Soviet Union in Ukraine um, in um, and uh, we I grew up in the United States, obviously. Um, and um, at the time, of course, the Soviet Union was not it was neither emerging nor a market um, in the 70s. Uh, and then when I got to university, uh, which uh, at your alma mater, which we share at Chicago, I had a professor who, um, who uh, Professor Professor uh, Lucas, who uh, then went on to win a Nobel Prize um, and since has uh, since passed away. He was he uh, taught a growth class where he kind of emphasized this, uh, posed this question of why is it that emerging market you have some economies that have very high return on capital and um, and it's kind of sustained for for many decades. Um, this is this is like early 90s at this stage. And um, and then you have other markets where uh, return on capital is relatively low and it's very competitive. And the, so the question is kind of what, how is it that uh, is it a violation of efficient markets theory that um, you have this very high return on capital in some places and, of course, uh, very low in others and how to explain it? And uh, of course, the explanation was uh, non-quantitative, but is political economy, risk factors, legal systems, et cetera. And um, that was kind of like an early flavor into EM as being an interesting place where, you know, to the extent political economy and uh, and other related factors can settle down or become more investor friendly, uh, return on capital can uh, can compress um, or normalize, if you will. And of course, for investors, that's a huge opportunity. That kind of piqued my interest and it coincided, frankly, as I was graduating university, uh, coincided with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, which collapsed in 91 and then kind of um, uh, slowly turned into a market by the mid '90s, and that um, that was kind of a favorable uh, favorable interplay, um, such that um, af after having worked in uh, on Wall Street for a few years, I was able to uh, I guess use my language skills and actually kind of jettison into an emerging market, and I've been kind of obsessed ever since, um, and obviously ever since diversifying away from um, from focusing on uh, one market to focusing on many. That's great. What, what what language skills? What languages do you speak? Um, well, I, I, I speak. Uh, I grew up speaking Russian my whole life, and um, um, and uh, I would say that I'm pretty much interchangeable between English and Russian. Um, and uh, and then I speak French, uh, but that's learned rather than uh, rather than uh, heritage, if you will. Yep, no, that makes sense. So um, now you you found you founded uh, Sandglass Capital um, a number of years back, and sort of maybe mm -hmm. kind of. Talk about how you you came to the the found Sandglass Capital. Sure. Um, so I, as I said, I spent most of my career doing EM, um, and um, when I started doing EM, EM was very much a um, 
was very much focused uh, was very much a growth story focused on the I'd say the reintegration uh, or the integration, if you will, of um, of roughly called two billion people into the global economy. And the, the idea was that you have these very poor economies with tremendous natural resources and productive capacity. And as you fold them in and you have uh, more labor mobility and more capital mobility, of course, um, that you'd have tremendous uh, value gains. Um, good news is that story worked. Um, and nominal GDP in dollar terms in the 90s and all these EMs just skyrocketed sixfold, sevenfold, eightfold, um, which was this kind of one-off wealth effect, if you will, right? Um, and I was doing private equity at the time. And uh, I mean, frankly, we benefited from that in uh, two ways. One way is we were buying cheap assets and uh, effectively harvesting the risk premium by owning them and doing a little bit of cleanup to them um, before divesting them to strategics. And then we were investing in growth equity, which is kind of focusing on new companies that never existed, uh, that didn't exist 10 years ago. They weren't privatized. They were never state owned. They were founded by you know two guys uh, or two uh, two people who were thinking about um, how to address a missing a, a market need that was not uh, present in that EM. And um, by the time um, by the time when I first in 2009, I teamed up with some guys from who had spun off from a larger firm called More Capital, and we started a global special global special sits fund where kind of the EM sleeve of that was myself. And global spe special situations or special situations implies finding. Um, uh, deeply distressed or uh, distressed uh, assets where there's some kind of important and often overlooked event trigger which can materially reprice the asset. And uh, my sleeve of that was emerging markets, and um, I focused on that. And then eventually in 2013, I decided to just go on on my own. Um, and uh, really, for me, it was the idea was to migrate some of my experience doing private equity and to participate in what I would call the new EM, um, which is the one that's benefited, that's that's trying to participate in an already integrated emerging markets landscape that's already integrated into the global um, global economy. But still, many of these economies are tremendously inefficient, and they're still very attractive special situations. Great. So, so maybe, maybe kind of dig into that a little deeper. I mean, sand glass, you know, is is you mentioned special situations oriented. So, what are some of those special situations that are, are part of the sand glass strategy? Would you guys? I mean, you, you've done growth equity investing, private equity. At some point, does that become attractive? Also, emerging markets, or is it just is special situations just a great place to make money? Emerging markets. So, I think we, uh, from our, we don't do growth equity. Our, we're very much Sandglass is very much premised on the value end of the spectrum, um, and I think that's an attractive place to be doing EM. So, we do uh, we focus on deep value. Uh, in emerging markets. And a lot of our focus is to identify pivot points in the life cycle of a company or a country where we think things are about to uh, uh, turn the corner, improve, and asset prices can uh, recover. Again, going back to that Lucas model that we started off in the, the start of the call with, um, where the political economy um, uh, or the corporate governance of a company is doing a U-turn, and hopefully we can see it earlier than others and invest in it, uh, frankly, when it's cheaper and benefit from uh, from that um, from that reduced uh, perception of risk, and uh, which can really reprice an asset. Um, and I think when we do EM, that's all, that's all, I think it's a good way to do EM. People think of EM as being very risky, um, and. Uh, I haven't found it to be any riskier than any other type of investing, to be honest with you. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, risk is priced. Uh, you're buying these assets at cheap prices. Uh, like anything, if you make a bad investment, you get it wrong, you lose money. What I think invest, what I think what makes EM particularly attractive um, and what, what what we do at, uh, at Sandglass, what I think is particularly attractive is because, because of this uh, um, uh, strict focus on deep value, we think that we can identify loads and loads of convexity. And by that, I mean, find ideas that can do very well. If we if we get it right, we can do extremely, extremely well. And if we get it wrong, because it's deep value, we don't end up losing too much money. Um, and this is kind of this like, you know, Seth Carsman idea of like uh, of buying an asset cheap enough, um, your downside is typically limited and you have this very attractive upside downside ratio. And that's um, very much how we think about um, uh, our uh, our portfolio and our book and our investments. So that's um, 
I think a, a lot of that deep value focus, in my mind at least, takes a hatchet to a lot of the perceived risks uh, in emerging markets. Yeah, no, that, that makes that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, emerging markets obviously been as, as as an investment theme has sort of ebbed and flow out of popularity over the last couple of decades that you've been investing in the space. It is now a more attractive time to invest in emerging markets than it has been over the last 20 years, about the same, even more attractive? Sort of how would you characterize the environment now compared to how it's been over time? Well, if, if the horizon is 20 years, um, I would, well, as I said, the first uh, over, if, over the last 20 year horizon, but clearly the knots, the 2000 to 2008 period, say pre Lehman, was, uh, was a pretty amazing time for young investors. Um, and um, and that was still part of that uh, global integration um, growth spurt that that I picked up earlier. Um, and especially, I should point out part of that amazing EML performance in those ten years. And this is often forgotten when people think about the two thousands as being this amazing time of EM that it's all gone. What people forget is that came on the on the cusp of the big blowups in EM that happened in ninety eight and ninety nine with the Asia crisis, the Russian uh, uh, Russian default, et cetera. And so you had uh, EM was pretty bombed out uh, going into 2000. And again, um, I go back to because investors who got involved that early, um, as early as say 2000, um, when no one wanted to hear about EM, were able to pick up assets at insanely cheap prices and uh, and get attractive recovery. I mean, I can share you some anecdotes. Um, people were buying uh, the bonds of a Russian oil company at two cents. Uh, they paid a year later. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of um, um, so those that that's a once in a lifetime kind of thing. Um, yep. But to, to answer your question today, what makes it interesting is um, we've just been through in 2022 uh, probably the greatest redemption cycle in EM since Lehman. Um, certainly, it's a percent of uh, in terms of absolute dollar redemptions. It's probably it's exceeded Lehman in terms of percentage of assets under management. It's uh, it's similar to Lehman. Um, so, 22, we saw just this massive out. Everyone uh, uh, in the West kept uh, was dumping EM assets left and right, and as a result, EM spreads went to uh, went to the absolute wides. And actually, EM equities today traded historically cheap uh, PE ratios. Um, so. For me, that always has to pique your interest. And then when I layer on to that, and this is a super important point that is often forgotten. In 2022, oh, as, I, we, as I said, we had this extremely uh, sharp and rapid tightening of monetary conditions pretty much globally and in sync. And the U.S. was probably the fastest, certainly for a major central bank. And in in kind of our early career EMs or in mom and pops EMs, when that would lead to a typical kind of wall of dominoes of defaults across the EM landscape. You would expect all of these guys to fall over like, like bricks. And in fact, it didn't happen, right? And in fact, it didn't happen. So there's a there's some decent distressed names out there, but the idea that you know we're not restructuring Brazil, we are not restructuring, uh, we're not restructuring Thailand, we're not restructuring Malaysia. Uh, these are kind of you know the uh, the earlier. Uh, so all I'm saying is that you have this very um, um, and by the way, the currencies EMFX seem to hold up quite well last year. So I, that whole background is to say that even though EMs are extremely cheap, it's hard to say that there's like an EM depression um, or there's some like systematic EM crisis. Um, and so you're taking a lot of kind of like macroeconomic risk at the EM level. That, that seems very far from true. Um, and so the reason why I think it's quite attractive is you have this rare opportunity to be able to buy things really cheap in a landscape that's frankly pretty good. Um, and, um, so that's, um, that's what I think is, uh, attractive. That's why I'll speak, you know, say two words about us. We are, we have been super, super, super risked up this year. Um, and frankly are being rewarded for it. That's great. And now in your, your, your couple of decades investing in merchant markets, what's been the, the biggest challenge you, you talked about, there's a lot of perceived risks in the space, but I'm, and I'm sure like any, any area investment where you have the potential to make money, there's risk, right? So what have been the biggest risks from your perspective or challenges investing in merchant markets? Well, I think the biggest challenge in EM is that, um, I guess when it rains, it pours, um, and EMs don't do recessions well. 
right? So whereas in um, whereas in DM is it's not a perfect analogy, but I think in developed markets recessions have the kind of uh, some feeling for the most part of linear a linearity in their losses, if you will. Whereas in EM it seems to fall, it seems to be very uh, very nonlinear, uh, kind of falls off a cliff. So that's um, I think the big challenge in EM is when it rains and pours, and if people don't want to hold uh, the risk of country X, they really don't want to hold it. Um, and they really dump it. Now that's the opportunity. So that's the opportunity, obviously, if you're not involved, um, to be on the tail end of that. Um, but I think the um, so I think the big challenge is you always have to you have to always be worried about um, this kind of um, you know uh, nonlinearity, if you will, on the downside. Um, so that's that's one scary feature, I guess. Um, people talk about uh, uh, political economic risks, um, and that's certainly true. But I mean. I've done this long enough where I, you know, I just don't, I'm, I'm not sure that they are particularly far more acute than we see in some developed markets. Italy out of nowhere, yeah, two days ago, announced a, 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 a very punitive bank tax um, and 48 hours later is doing a U-turn on it. That seems pretty EME to me, um, but that's Italy, um, not uh, because of DM. So all I'm saying is that you have these you have um, policy responses um, that are um, that are in that in, I would say policy responses in EM have have normalized to the sense that they're I wouldn't say that they're necessarily that much crazier than what um, we sometimes see in developed markets. Yeah, um, that's... But I, I would say that you know just lastly, uh, Joe just said that you know I think looking through the dark storm clouds in EM. Um, as you say, when there are big challenges, is really being able to see through those clouds and to see uh, to see um, you know objects there. I think that's really the big differentiator. Um, and maybe I'll just give you an example. When I look at recent years, our biggest source of PL have been in uh, of gains have been in Ukraine. I know if you hard to believe, right? Um, yeah, well. Greece. Um, and these are difficult markets for people to understand. Most people, when they think about Ukraine, they think about it and they see bombs, and they think, which is true too, by the way. And when they see, um, when they think about Greece, they think about, I don't know, um, a far leftist economy that's highly regulated and uh, owes everyone money and is in default, something like that. Um, and um, in fact, um, in fact, in Ukraine, um, I mean, as a small example, um, I ask people this very often, how, how many Ukrainian corporates that have issued do you think have defaulted since the war started? And everyone, uh, the answer I get is sometimes 20%, sometimes 50%. Uh, the truth is the answer is zero, right? Yep. Everyone's remaining current. Um, and it's pretty exciting if you can, which is something that we were quite sure would happen. It's pretty exciting if you can buy a bond at 20, 25 cents that's, that's, that's remains current and it keeps paying you. It doesn't stay there very long, of course. Um, what kind of, just, to, just to give the audience some kind of perspective that you're buying a bond at 20 cents on the dollar, that's current, current pay. I mean, what sort of, what kind of yield are you guys generating on that investment? Well, the one I have in mind, for example, pays a 7% coupon. Um, so, yeah. And um, it's uh, infrastructure assets. So, you know, short of a uh, nuclear war, it's going to be there. Um, Ukrainians will need electricity um, unless they're going to the Stone Age. So it's going to be there forever. Um, and uh, a lot of assets, obviously. And uh, yeah, so we bought these bonds at uh, 20 cents. Uh, today they traded 60. But uh, when we bought them, they traded 20. And they traded 20 for just over a year, by the way, um, paying you the 7% coupon, which is very attractive. Um, and that was pretty much our bet that um, this thing would always survive. They can remain current for a while. And um, if you, uh, to the extent, um, as long as their assets hold together and the economy remains more or less stable or even weaker, eventually people will have to uh, bid these bonds higher just given the yield is too attractive. And if we get it all wrong, you know, at 20 cents, we'll always restructure at 20 and get 20 cents. Uh, you'll, you'll always get 20 cents. So I didn't see much downside. Um, on the on the on the on the low end, and I saw a lot of upside on the high end. That's great. That's an, that's a great example, and it, it, we'll, we'll probably di dive in a little bit more too. But <laughs> you kind of talked about it before. You know, you're, you're sort of looking for these um, transitions, um, either sovereign or corporate. And I mean, um, sometimes. And and so, how do you guys? Or even even we talked about the Ukraine just finding an asset that was trading at a you know with with nice convexity and the return potential. How do you guys? find those opportunities given the large landscape that you are operating in? 
Well, I think, Joe, the answer is that we, um, we've been doing EM for, um, for most of our careers. Everyone on their team is only, only uh, has been doing EM for a majority of their careers. Um, and so I think just over time, you kind of have a feel and a knowledge of the broad landscape of assets that would be interesting in a, for a special situations mandate. And that's a very important filter, right? So in general, we focus on uh, special situations, which are typically countries that are either underdeveloped or have had uh, some kind of event shock or um, uh, where that, that have a shortage of capital where we believe that our capital can uh, come in early and benefit from uh, reflation and reappreciation of asset prices. Um, we typically don't invest in markets that are uh, overly modern and sophisticated with huge savings bases in the sense that they don't necessarily need sand glass capital. Uh, domestic savers seem to fill the void just fine. Um, so as a result, that very much narrows down the landscape. And then the kind of the next funnel you have to ask is where are their tradable assets? Right. So the big big story in the EM in the last 20 years is the just massive proliferation of tradable assets. Um, a lot of companies have gone to market to either issue bonds or issue um, or issue equity or borrow in the, in the syndicate loan market. Um, so those are kind of the three big areas that we uh, you know, that we uh, that we look for ideas in. Um, but. Um, of course, not all of them are uh, well suited for a special situations type uh, deep value mentality. And so one of the things we also have to do is be very alert and focused on all the news flow in the key markets that we're involved in. And um, as a result, our investment team, um, we have some kind of, uh, I'd say, loose geographic understanding of who's responsible for what. And we keep it loose because we uh, I want people to feel like an integrated team rather than you know, this is his his area, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, or this is her area, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, um, we want to have it. So, but the answer is that we everyone has to be kind of keeping an eye on things. And of course, lastly, we um, we do a uh, we do a lot of recycling. I mean, there's no question. Um, things that uh, we don't we like now we looked at ten years ago and and didn't like it for us, but today we we're back and liking it. So that's a uh, this kind of idea recycling is a big feature as well. No, that makes sense. And so, in your in your couple of decades of investing, what what sort of been your best investment? You, you maybe, and we'll take the counter side too, as you as you think about that too. Your worst investment, and what are some of the lessons you learned, either positive or negative, over those twenty years of investing in emerging markets? Um. So, in terms of best, those are hard to answer. Um, there's probably the. I would start by answering. I, I'm almost sure that probably the best investment that we've made, uh, the best investments we've made, are the ones we didn't make that fell off, uh, fell off uh, the table. Which is, and I just say that because that's our mentality. Which is, um, um, as you know, in statistics, there's this idea of type one, type two error, uh, making a run, uh, right? And we try to definitely avoid. We always err on the side of not making a bad investment. Um, yep. But in terms of ones that we did make, um, in IRR terms, probably. Probably some ideas we've had in Ukraine, um, which have just generated three times our money in in some cases in the span of 18 months, in some cases in the span of four months. So I would probably in IRR terms, probably Ukraine. In absolute dollar terms, probably Greece. Um, we were heavily invested there. Uh, we heavily invested there just after COVID. And we've been very handsomely rewarded for it. Um, and I think in Greece was a classic case, by the way, I should just say, of this Lucas mentality of a country that's gone, that went from having bonds trading at, in the span of seven, eight years, bonds traded at 30 cents to bonds trade inside Italy. Okay. Um, um, so like a, a small spread to Germany again. Um, so way above par. Um, and then... Um, uh, companies being able to tap the bond market at ease, and now we're picking over: are these equities too cheap or too expensive versus their European peers? So it's been quite a big move from kind of you know will this country survive? And this uh, and uh, a lot of that's happened as a result of people discounting political risks differently uh, and economic risks differently. But in Greece, we took a big bet that this uh, this train of improvement would happen. Um, and I, I frankly think we, it was an easy bet. You had a center-right government uh, committed to reform with a mandate for reform. So we kind of thought it was a pretty easy bet. And uh, that's when we really got involved. So so on the Greece thing, I mean, do you guys have the flexibility at Sanglass to sort of, did you guys start investing Greece into the bonds first and then shift over the equities as the bonds became more, more correctly valued or sort of? 
Is that sort of guys, I guess you're able to play Greece. That's exactly. So I think uh, one of the important features of doing EM for a long time is that it's a, uh, I think you need some capital structure flexibility um, yep. because the, um, the fulcrum of value um, uh, isn't always, uh, uh, you know, kind of moves around a little bit in the cap structure um, at different times in the life cycle of an asset. Uh, so in Greece, in particular, yeah, we started off as um, we started off as uh, we started our participation in Greece as sovereign bond investors. Uh, then moved into being corporate bond investors. Then moved into being bank subdebt investors, and are now pretty much only equity investors. Yeah, that's interesting. And then it, we we kind of skipped over that one with the the worst investment. Is there, is there anything you you you'd be willing to share with the with the audience sure. about no, you know, sure, sure, sure. something I'd that hasn't I'd... worked out? And then um... yeah, you can't um, you can't get them all right, unfortunately. And um, um, if you get them all right, you'd uh, yeah, you own all the assets in the world by now. Um, so um, uh, if you could compound and getting it all right, um, but um, I think the uh, probably the worst one for us was Venezuela. Um, we took a bet on, um, we spent a lot of time focusing on Venezuela and missed an important feature of it called Washington. Um, and uh, when Washington posed sanctions on Venezuela, um, that kind of flipped over the apple cart, if you will, on the whole investment case in Venezuela. And that's one where, at least temporarily, we've had a, you know, it's been a very difficult, um, we thought we were buying bonds very cheap, and then Washington came in and um, and made them uh, substantially cheaper. I wouldn't say the story's over, of course, and we remain uh, we remain holders and hopefully are waiting for sanctions to be lifted. Um, it's possible it happens after the elections in the U.S. It's possible. Um, and... Um, and we think that would be a helpful, um, that would be very helpful to the case. Probably another example I could think of uh, that's close is we were involved in a corporate credit in Turkey where, I mean, pretty much everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Um, and one feature of that was the management. Um, we uncovered the management having not exactly been very honest with all of us um, bondholders. So actually, uh, we and we sort of led a group that um filed a claim against manage, against the board and management in the uk um and we settled with them um but had we not found and we not uncovered these malfeasances yeah recovery would have been, would have been our other worst investment um but recovery because of the lawsuit um kind of uh, uh i would say softened it um so that's uh, those would be the two that come to mind most so i mean you mentioned lawsuits and obviously as a special situation investor i think um you know, you know, having to go through restructurings and stuff I probably come up quite a bit. Are there are there are there markets that you guys avoid just given some of the restructuring risks? I mean, it's great that you were able to to get some value out of this Turkey Turkish company, but are there markets where you, if you have to kind of work out through a situation that um, you, you may not be able to get your money back? Sure. Um, I think it's almost it's a little bit less of a question of markets, but of the individual investment. So. Um, uh, just to be clear, we in every case we only invest in New York law and UK law bonds, um, which represent or uh, claims, I should say, which represents roughly ninety percent of the uh, euro bond landscape. Um, so uh, now, what that means is, if something goes wrong, you can never uh, the company, the issuer, can't ever get rid of their cl that claim as long as you have a valid claim that a New York or UK judge confirms you do. Um, and they'll always have to work it out for you, with you. And uh, there's so many there's so many examples um, of that where people try to pretend that they don't have a debt, um, and then of course they have a debt, um, and uh, and then they have to and then they have to result work something out. So there's been I think there's a lot of case history there. For us, that's that's really the important filter is um, what's our leverage, if you will, over on the other side. Now in sovereigns. Typically, it's not it's not the legal process, right? In sovereigns, it's typically the sovereign doesn't want to commit harikiri by defaulting and remaining in default. It kind of ends the um, investment story for the country for for a long time, um, and that's and that's the case oftentimes in corporates as well, or more often than not in corporates as well, is that they uh, the moment you default and you remain in default, your equity value is wiped out. So um, I think the main regulator, and I, I get asked this a lot, I think the main regulator of this question is not necessarily the legal process. It's do you, is there sufficient value there that it's, an, that, um, that, you, that the creditors 
um, or let's say the stakeholders can sit around the table and divide it up, if you will, in a way that there's something for everybody. Um, and if that value isn't there, well, that value isn't there, and that has nothing to do with EM. It just means you made a bad investment in something that's completely lost economic value. I guess your worry would be, or one could worry, that there is value, but because of the EM situation, you, uh, an external uh, stakeholder can't get any of it because the um, the local is able to manipulate the process. So we personally have not been involved in, this, in any situation that looks like that. Um, people have argued some of these sovereign restrictions in the past haven't been so fair, but that's more of a systemic question. But at the corporate level, for example, I haven't seen that. Yeah, that's interesting. Or I haven't experienced so, that. I haven't experienced yep. that. I would say. Yep. Makes sense. So um, we talked about some some recent investments that are, have done really well, and I, and I believe you still have in your portfolio the Ukraine and, and Greece. But maybe can you give the audience sort of a broad perspective and where the opportunity set is in emerging markets today? Maybe some some places where you guys are positioned and finding um, value, and maybe kind of walk through not only that, but just sort of what the thesis is behind where that value will how that value will accrue and over time. Sure. Well, I mean, look, um, EMs are. Definitely uh, out of favor at the moment, um, even though, as I pointed out, uh, economies have been remarkably resilient. Um, and so you have this like pretty amazing chance to invest in pretty good stuff at insanely cheap, at very, very cheap prices. Um, where we've been, we've really focused on the most has been in, in credit in particular and in distressed credit. Um, pretty much for the reasons I uh, mentioned earlier in the call, that um, uh, spreads are just at the wides and you can make uh, very attractive returns um, either by taking, um, by taking uh, you can make extreme, extremely high returns by taking a decent amount of risk. Or, and there's also, frankly, just very attractive returns by taking, in our opinion, almost trivial amount of risk. So maybe some examples. Um, we've, uh, I've mentioned Ukraine. I haven't talked about Argentina. Um, I'm not sure if I should, because there's an election coming up in, in a couple of this weekend. Uh, so our thesis will be tested a little bit. Um, but, uh, Argentina is the only bond on my, in my universe that I can think of that trades at 30 something cents and is performing. It's just amazing. Um, it's a great, it's a great example of, a country with a horrible brand that's um, uh, come up as a result of a series of defaults and terrible policy decisions have kind of ruined the investment case for themselves. But we think that um, this upcoming election can really turn the corner for the country. And we think that, uh, frankly, over a 12, 18 month horizon, we can double our money there. Um, and if we're wrong, because we're buying bonds at 30 cents, and if you know, the candidate that we don't want to win wins. We still don't think we'll do very poorly. Um, we still think we can do okay because they, even though without the repricing, the yield is the running yield is still very attractive. Um, we have a, a quite a meaningful position in Argentina. Um, I've mentioned Ukraine, but I should also mention um, that we've been doing distressed uh, distressed name distressed sovereigns in West Africa as well as in um, as well as in South Asia. Um, and these are mostly, uh, in one case of performing, in one case of distressed, but these are mostly uh, all countries fighting, if you will, to get back on track with the market and doing their best to repay bondholders. Um, and um, that's usually a very good flavor. And there's, um, I think it's a common misconception. People think a lot of these EM sovereigns just love to sit in default and not, never pay you. That's, uh, I, I couldn't, uh, nothing's further from the truth. Um, they all want to get, it's, the right question is on what conditions do they want to get back into the market and restructure? And that's where kind of, that's where your investment hat has to come on and you have to do some investment judgment. But everyone wants to, everyone wants to cure their default, everyone. OK, um, maybe ex with exceptions of maybe uh, North Korea and Sudan or something like that in uh, Cuba. Um, then um, the other where we've also found attractive value is in some of these um, uh, very well performing credits. We've been buying EM corporates that are effectively unlevered. Um, meaning they either have more cash than debt without a big capex story attached to them, or they're generating so much cash that they will very shortly have more cash than debt. And many of these pay sort of high teens yields in dollars um, over like a three to seven year duration. If I just look at our portfolio, so we think that's quite attractive, actually, for you basically you, you can make high teens yields for um, uh, well-known, recognized, important companies where your bet is not that they do something, is that nothing bad happens. Right. Um, so it's a very, very, very well, um, very well uh, 
I'd say a very, it's kind of writing a very safe point, you can look at it this way. Um, and um, we find that very, uh, we find that attractive. And then lastly, just in equities, um, we have been uh, buyers of equities with one principle, which is we need to see dividend flow. And we we own companies, we've been buying companies um, that have been throwing, that pay dividend yields of between 12 and 25%, say on the high end, which are pretty massive yields. Um, and uh, in some cases that we expect those yields to keep growing. And so uh, we like these stories, of course, because I like waking up every morning knowing that I'm taking a little bit of money out of these EMs um, and bringing them back home. It's a nice feeling. And that's why these, that's why these very juicy yields are very attractive, of course. Just going, to, we talked about our, our common roots at the University of Chicago, and obviously, mm-hmm. I think one of the arguments would be, you know, those 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 stocks are trading with twelve to twenty five percent dividend yields. Maybe the market's trying to tell us something, right? So, what mm-hmm. what does the market think about those companies that that risk premium is so high? That, that's Let's unjust. Pick an example. So we're in, uh, we bought a big book. Uh, we, we bought a, I'd say a meaningful position. I don't know about big. We bought a meaningful position in um, the equities of two banks in Kazakhstan. May sound a bit exotic, but um, Kazakhstan is a country in population terms, and in G- uh, uh, Kazakhstan is about 18 million people, um, and has, is among the highest in GDP per capita, um, frankly, in the region, um, in the former Soviet Union. Um, obviously, it's extremely rich in natural resources, uh, with, it has, covers a huge territory, and a very low density population. Um, uh, it's a very, very, very big export story, of course. Um, the banking system there is small and heavily concentrated. Um, one of the banks that we're invested in, Halleck, is uh, generates a an ROE of around thirty percent. It has been doing so for about a decade. Um, and when we got invested in Halleck, was right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, when the stock f- sold off forty percent. And we were sort of scratching our heads trying to figure out why would anyone. Does anyone, uh, I mean, unless you think that Russia is going to invade Ukraine and invade Kazakhstan, um, it didn't really make much sense to us. Um, So we started building a position and um, we ended up being proven right. They paid us a dividend of uh, uh, 25% dividend yield uh, just over a year after we got invested. And we think, um, you know, based on original cost, we think the dividend yields uh, coming up in uh, based on next year's dividend will be closer to 32, 33%. So then the question is, what does the market think? I guess the market is nervous that Russia was about to invade Kazakhstan too. Um, But I think one of the features that you find in EM is it's such a heavily, certainly in the short term, sentiment and flows are such a heavily dominant feature in a lot of these markets individually that that can overwhelm, if you will, the UChicago efficient markets question. Remember, even at UChicago, um, uh, even under efficient markets hypothesis, it's it's never strong enough to say that markets are everywhere and always efficient at every moment in time. It's just that it says that it trends in this direction. Um, So I don't think any of this is necessarily a violation of that. In fact, if anything, you know, we're part of our job is to invest in in find uh, dislocations um, that hopefully uh, and hopefully when markets are efficient, that gets realized. Yep. No, exactly. I totally agree with you. Um, And so, you know, we talked about the last 20 years emerging markets. I mean, hopefully I'm sure at Sanglass, you guys hope to be around emerging markets for for a number of years going forward. I mean, how do you see the, the emerging markets evolving over time? Ooh, that's a very hard question. Obviously, um, a lot of it depends on the global landscape for risk. Um, that's kind of like a 12, 18 month question, right? Um, um, obviously, a US recession would almost certainly uh, give you a brief overshoot in EMs um, on the downside, and that would be kind of another uh, good opportunity. I don't know how much further they could fall, but uh, I guess they could. Um, um, we think, I think the big question is going to be, and uh, by the way, I have more questions than answers, but I think the big question is going to be is because EMs are so dependent on on the export story, I think uh, among the big challenges going to be is the role in China as an importer of a lot of EM commodities, okay? The ability of EMs uh, to start, because a lot of them have grown enough in nominal GDP terms, the fragmentation of trade is going to have to result in people thinking about this export story differently. And what I mean by that is, historically, people think of EM when they, when people think of EM as an export story, they think of EMs taking stuff out of the ground or adding some value to something that they have and selling them to the U.S., Europe, or to China. 
Right, just I keep it really simple. Um, and there will, I, I expect there to be a very strong dilution, if you will, of that story in favor of EMs taking stuff out of the ground, adding some value, and selling them to other EMs. Um, and um, that shouldn't surprise you with the large wealth gains that EMs are, you know, becoming increasingly strong importers as well as simply exporters. Um, and you see that, um, and you, you can see that a lot in the balance of payments in a lot of these emerging markets. I think the other important story is going to be um, EMs funding themselves. That's a huge point. So historically, um, people think of EMs needing capital as them effectively borrowing them from us, right, from uh, from developed markets. And one of the answers to the puzzle of why EMs didn't all fall over like dominoes in 2022 is in the last 20 years, a domestic savings base has compounded, compounded, and compounded. And so there is a source of local funding to address, uh, maybe not fully, but increasingly to address EM growth needs. And I think that's that story is only going to continue. So I guess one way to think about the opportunity set in EM is that I would expect it to always be there. But I would, and, and because when we talk about EMs, it's a very fragmented, heterogeneous, heterogeneous landscape. At the same time, I'd say the average temperature in the hospital, kind of EMs as a whole, I would expect to become a lot, probably lower volatility, and hence kind of, uh, frankly, an average lower, lower, uh, lower turn as well. Um, and that's that, again, I'll have to go back to it, that famous Lucas conversion, uh, convergence, if you will, that we started the call with. And, and it's a very natural trend. But there's, there's a lot of money to be made along the way. Yeah, no, that's, that, 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 make, that makes a lot of sense. And so and maybe just kind of pick on one country that you, get, you guys are pretty heavily invested on today. And if you look at Argentina, so sort of mm -hmm. that evolution of a country, I mean, at one point, Argentina is a very wealthy country. Um, and it's kind of, to your point, it's gone through it's a lot of turmoil over the last couple of decades. And so does Argentina, for example, become one of those countries that, um, you know, I, I know some tech guys there who do great things and some interesting stuff. There's obviously you mentioned um, having, you know, commodity wealth, stuff like that. But is, is this Argentina become sort of a developed nation at some point in time or is it still sort of stuck in, for a long time in the emerging market bucket? Well, Argentina is always a, is is the big Churchill said Russia is like an enigma, a puzzle wrapped in an enigma or something like that. Um, Argentina for investors definitely is. So on the one hand, if you look at the hard cold numbers, um, it's a moderately it's a middle income country. Um, and then for those of us who spend a lot of time there, um, you see signs of it being a middle income country. You of course see lots of signs that it's much worse than that. Um, and um, um, Having been to Argentina when bonds were 50, I've been to Argentina when bonds were 15 cents. I've been there when bonds were 70 cents. I've been there when bonds were 90 cents. Um, sometime in, in Buenos Aires, it all feels the same. <laughs> so it's kind of, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a tricky place. Now, in terms to your question, um, to predict an Argentina super cycle is a, would be quite a bold statement. Um, and I'm not sure we're ready to quite make that kind of call. Um, we're mostly invested in Argentine bonds, which is, of course, a different story. Um, I say we're only invested in Argentine bonds, which is, of course, a different story, which is not a play on whether Argentina will have an investment super cycle. Like, frankly, I think Greece could have. Um, um, but that Argentina uh, can do just well enough to kind of uh, improve just enough to kind of keep everyone more or less current uh, and certainly more or less current versus current prices. Occur. Um, and um, so that's a very, very different bet. So Argentina has obviously had a very troubled uh, two decades since uh, since the early 2000s default. Um, some of that has to do with uh, the challenging political environment facing the country, and others have to do with more cyclical factors. Um, more recently, uh, the uh, the poor harvest period, um, the poor, the drought conditions uh, that befell Argentina earlier this year have taken a big sledgehammer, if you will, to Argentine exports um, to the tune of over $20 billion of export shortfall as a result of just a very bad harvest. And um, I think for the next administration, one of the key challenges, among the various challenges that it has, one of the likely benefits that, that will accrue to it will be um, the end of the La Nino period and the beginning, if you will, of more normalized um, 
uh, more normalized uh, weather patterns, which will allow uh, the harvest to normalize and hence, of course, uh, spruce up export revenue. Now, even uh, on a more structural level, Argentina has been improving its hydrocarbon position uh, for over a decade, and it's finally kind of coming to fruition. Uh, this year will, it will have been the first year that Argentina will have substantially reduced its LNG imports as a result of the deployment of the so-called Kirchner pipeline. Um, it will be in full force in effect next year, which means Argentina will be a very small LNG importer next year. Um, eventually, if things continue as planned, Argentina could be actually an LNG exporter, um, although that's some years away. Um, similarly, Argentina continues to grow its export uh, capacity for oil, um, and that is intended. To, that is supposed to keep growing every year for the for the subsequent period, and that's likely to be true for almost whoever wins this uh, election, and uh, will be true for all for the next two subsequent governments. The key challenge, of course, there is then the politics is this improving net export picture that I've just described. How how is that? How will that largesse be spent and will it be wasted or will it be used intelligently to clean up what is uh, really quite a mess at the moment with uh, spiraling inflation um, uh, and really kind of loss of a nominal anchor? And I think in general for a country like Argentina, um, to the extent it's able to grow its reserves and build a reserve base, having a lot of dollars uh, does kind of should help. Argentina, I'd say, organize society or organize the economics in a much more favorable way than um, than they have been able to in the last uh, in the last uh, several years, when of course they were uh, playing catch up the whole time. Um, and I think that's going to be a big challenge for the next administration is trying to re re anchor the economy in a new nominal anchor. Obviously, there's some ideas. Um, one of the candidates, Malay, believes that it's impossible under current political conditions and wants to move to a dollar to full dollarization, um, which is effectively surrendering the anchor, if you will, uh, to uh, external monetary authorities, in this case, the U.S. Fed. Um, that comes with its pluses and minuses, both in the transition and in the, over the long term, although undoubtedly it will definitely solve one problem, which is hyperinflation. That is for sure. Um, the question is, what other problems will it bring along the way? And that's, of course, the debate. Um, and of course, um, uh, one of the other the, the traditional center right candidate, uh, Patricia Bullrich, uh, seems to support uh, a more traditional anchoring of policy into tight monetary policy. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have the uh, uh, leftist candidate, uh, Sergio Massa, who I believe uh, is interested in also anchoring, uh, anchoring it similar to Bullrich, although he's, of course, um, hostage to his base, which which have been, um, uh, I'd say, uh, pleasant uh, supporters of a loose fiscal and monetary conditions in the country. So I think that's uh, that's the challenge that's going to uh, dawn on the next administration. And that's why I think this October election that's coming up is really a fork in the road for the country um, as to whether they will choose uh, choose a um, kind of a, 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 a difficult accepting a difficult 12, 18 months uh, in exchange for a hope, what I expect to be a much brighter future for them in the future. Um, or um, will they continue to try to play along with um uh, play this, you know, rather failed game that they've been playing for uh, for the last four years. So, in theory, to your question, uh, could you have an investment super cycle? Um, uh, of course, you always could. Um, you can never, you can never rule out the tails. But I think it's going to be a more muddly and difficult process. Um, I think there's a very strong fundamental story there. But of course, the political economy in Argentina is uh, is troubled. And um, you know, you pointed out it used to be a very wealthy country, um, and then Juan Perón. Um, sold the country a uh, very difficult, um, I'd say imposed on the country a very difficult political, political economic mindset um, that they've been trying to um, break free from for the last 15, 20 years. And, um, and it's been kind of one step forward, one step back. Hopefully it'll be two steps forward, one step back soon. Yep. That's great. That's good. It's good analysis. And so it, it's one other investment I want to touch on before we, we kind of wrap up the investment discussion. Um, you mentioned the Ukraine, and obviously the corporate the corporate bonds have been done really well. They're great investments for you guys. Does does the resolution of the conflict, um, if it's not as favorable to the Ukraine, Russia maybe takes over more territory, or something happens? Are there scenarios that that you would be concerned about those investments? And maybe I don't know if you have to, you know, have some sort of crystal ball to know what happens. But sort of, do you guys have sort of a baseline thesis on how the Ukraine Russia yeah. conflict plays out? 
it's hard for me to definitely it's hard for me to think in terms of territory um um just because just because um obviously i didn't go to i didn't go to the you know west point or war college and and as we're seeing people who did also got it massively wrong exactly um, people, <laughs> right, Surely, yeah. right people uh people predicted Kiev would fall in three days uh, people in the pentagon and um and uh of course we're now into day more or less 600 i think of the war um and um so it, it, we would never make an investment premised on that our, our investment our investments are premised on a there will be a ukraine okay it seems a pretty low bar here okay b the west will the, the west in the broad sense will provide um economic support to post-war ukraine Okay, um, and see the war will sooner or later end, um, and hopefully the sooner the better. Uh, first and foremost, not even for Sandglass and our investors, but first and foremost for the people living in Ukraine, who um, so they um, so the the suffering comes to an end. Um, and I think that's a um, that's uh, I think a you know I think those three true I think those three things are um some combination of almost I, I think the the war will certainly come to an end that's um that's a certainty every war does um I think it's very likely that I think it's probably at this point 95 percent probability if not higher that there will be a Ukraine um when the war ends and um and I think the last point uh you, everyone can take their bet but I think the West is pretty committed to Ukraine at the moment and I think they're not I think that's uh almost a, a done deal. Um, so, you know, I looked, I, I was, uh, when I look at the Korean war, for example, um, that war lasted three years, right? Um, and we still think about it. Well, I hope we think about it, uh, three generations later. Um, and, um, and, uh, so I think we're now in, you know, wrapping up, we're close to wrapping up the year two of this thing. I think, I don't think that there is, um, I don't think it's going to go on forever. I think we, and it just, from what my analysis, what I read in, in, in the Russian press and the Ukrainian press, I think we're, uh, I think things are coming to a head where, um, we could see peace talks as early as next year. Uh, that'd be great. Yeah. That'd be good if yeah. that happens. So maybe a little bit off the investment topic and you can, this can actually relate to you and your firm, but, um, but just maybe just even personally, however you want to answer it, but how do you define success in your life? Success in my life? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think the hardest part of defining success is trying to define what you want to be successful in. Um, I think that's um, in one of my favorite in, uh, in Citizen Kane, uh, uh, that famous Orson Welles movie from uh, I guess the late forties, um, mid forties. Um, there's a when uh, when um, there, uh, his business, Kane's business manager says um, uh, it's not that hard to make a lot of money if all you want to do is make a lot of money. Um, and I think it's important. People often think about, um, especially in this industry, they think about money as the key me metric of success. But in reality, that's not that's very rarely true. And in fact, almost everyone has a, a much wider set, a set of interests. Um, they, they talk about money a lot. But if you look at how people spend their time and where their head is, they have a, 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 wide, a wide range of interests. They go beyond just money. And I kind of think about it, in my life, at least, I think about three things. And I guess since we're talking about financial goals, obviously, we all have financial goals. Um, and um, and mine are a little bit more focused on making sure that Sandglass is a success that can um, that can make a mark in emerging markets investing and will be a known and well recognized brand um, in EM investing. I think that's important. We we very much like to think of ourselves as I don't know for lack of a way to put it a smart or on the edge investors in EM um, and um, we'd like that we'd like people we'd like a lot of people to think that too. I think also uh, every one of us in our lifetimes are often faced with uh, these very uh, uh, difficult external conditions, and sometimes we're called to act on them and do something about it. And I guess uh, certainly recently for us, or for, I should say for myself and for my family, uh, the recent war between Russia and Ukraine was definitely a call to arms to put some of our uh, personal time, effort, um, uh, resources uh, to helping uh, Ukrainians to the extent we can, um, I, for my part, have tried to be as as try to be as charitable as possible with uh, with Ukrainian families and refugees um, here in London um, and uh, also in Ukraine on their way to on their way to uh, Europe. 
Um, my family has uh, have now spent. Well, my my elder son has now spent uh, two summers uh, using his language skills to help Ukrainian families. Everything from uh, from getting off the train station in the middle of the night and organizing them in some foreign city to helping them with paperwork and feeding them and looking after them and working in a kitchen for them, et cetera. So it's been uh, we've tried to you know try to balance our our personal lives, but not forget that we're very blessed to have the ability to help others and try to do our best to do that. Um, and um, kind of and obviously everyone has personal uh, uh, has. Uh, personal goals for themselves, whether that's, uh, for me, travel is a, is a big one. Um, uh, being an EM investor and, uh, and hating travel would be, uh, would be pretty difficult. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, so I'd like to, you know, expand some of my personal travel, some of my professional travel to personal travel. Um, and then of course we all have, uh, intellectual interests and erudition. I have some athletic goals as well. And then, um, probably the hardest one and the one we've is probably, I spend a lot of time on worrying about is family and relationship goals. We all want to leave something. We all, we always want to make sure kind of our family loved ones, especially the younger ones are in the right place in life and heading in the right direction and doing all the right things. Um, and, uh, that occupies obviously a lot of my time and attention as well. That's great. No, that's appreciate it. Now you, you mentioned a lot of travel and, and you, you, you have traveled a lot of, a lot of places around the world, both either for work or personally. So yeah. what, I was just kind of curious what what where's your what region do you think has the best food and maybe what region do you think has the worst food best food um so for, I'll start with uh I mean I'm an I'm an avowed francophile so um unrepentant uh so <laughs> I'll probably answer the first question of where is the best food but in emerging markets that has the best food which is probably a trickier question um um, for at least where I've traveled professionally, probably Morocco would probably be uh, would probably be uh, right at the top. Um, and uh, for the worst food, um, in my personal travels, I've been to Tibet, um, which is by far the worst. Which is a great place to go if you're on it, if you want to, if you need to diet. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's not only because everything is fried in yak butter um uh and and yak oil and yak grease and that's not only because it's uh something like 15,000 feet in the sky so uh kind of your head feels different um and so does your tummy in that place it's just a very it's a very 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 hard place to eat in my opinion um um and i guess in uh in professional travels um yeah probably nigeria would have to be top of the list for uh, where uh, food has been pretty pretty awful professionally, um, Kazakhstan would probably be a close number two. <laughs> That's good. And then just just real quick, and uh, what's your what's your favorite book? My favorite book. Yeah. Ooh. Um. In probably in fiction or historical fiction. Um, yeah, I'd probably say probably uh, Life and Faith by Vasily Grossman. Um, he was a Soviet journalist. Um, who wrote a book that never got published until after the collapse of the Soviet Union called Life and Fate. It's um, uh, it's uh, it's basically an updated war and peace. You can look at it this way, um, updated for World War II. Um, it's frankly the best thing I've ever read. It's uh, it has everything: uh, courage and betrayal and heroism and cowardice and love and hatred and it it's it's like the ultimate kind of human book um and uh in an amazing story it's it's a great it's it's amazing um, i have not read that so i'm gonna have to pick that up so thanks for life and fate yeah, I'll yeah. Look it up. And, then, yeah. and then in university probably um uh well i mean from chicago who didn't go to chicago and didn't read plato's republic and wasn't stunned so um <laughs> probably plato's republic um which uh I think it was either a republic or apology that uh, uh, for which struck me when I was a young boy was this idea of an unexamined life isn't worth living. And so always you need to be um, constantly analyzing yourself and uh, analyzing uh, what's around you. Um, and so, yeah, that's great. Well, thanks. Gotta, um, we really appreciate the time. As always, it's great talking to you and um, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Yo, thanks thank you very much for listening. Time. Thank you very much for your time. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. Any performance information discussed is based on past performance, which is not an indicator of future results. Performance discussed may or may not include the deduction of manager fees or clear set advisory fees, net performance. 
which would decrease the performance results discussed. If the performance information discussed does not explicitly disclose the deductions of manager and clear set advisory fees, the performance information should be reduced by 3 to 4% for all annualized time periods. The ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and the guests do not constitute legal, tax, or investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security or strategy and do not represent the opinions of the underwriters of this programming. Any information prepared from third-party sources is believed to be reliable, though its accuracy is not guaranteed. Opinions expressed in this commentary reflect subjective judgments of the speakers based on conditions at the time of recording and are subject to change without notice. Listeners should seek the input of their own financial, tax, and legal professionals before acting on any recommendation of the information provided.